Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Last month's bankruptcy filing by the Weinstein Company in the face of numerous claims for damages arising from alleged sexual harassment and assault allegations is the most recent reminder of the frequent interplay between tort law and the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. The fate of the company and the compensation to alleged victims hangs in the balance as that bankruptcy proceeds in Wilmington. Other prominent bankruptcy cases filed amid mass tort claims for personal injury, property damage, and deaths provide some insights into how these challenging cases can be resolved, and indeed how the cases are made even more complicated when the parties are located across international borders. Our guests today are uniquely experienced to discuss these issues. Bob Keach is a partner at Bernstein Schur in Portland, Maine. A past president of ABI, he was the court-appointed trustee in the Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic case, arising from a freight rail train derailment and explosion in the town of Lac-Megantic, Quebec, in July 2013. The accident resulted in 47 deaths, millions of dollars in property damage, and required long-lasting environmental remediation. In 2017, auto parts maker Takata filed for bankruptcy protection in Japan and the United States, facing a worldwide recall of over 100 million defective airbags linked to fatal crashes where more than 20 people died. With us today is Laura Davis-Jones. She's the managing partner of Pachalski, Stang, Zeal, and Jones, uh, sitting in Wilmington and practicing across the country, where she represents the official committee of unsecured tort creditors in Takata. She's the lead counsel uh, to the tort creditors. Um, so I want to thank you all for joining me on ABI Podcast. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. So, so Bob, let me start um, uh, with you in the, in the MMA case. Obviously, this was an incredibly uh, tragic uh, accident. Uh, occurred in a small town in Quebec, um, how soon after uh, the crash was it determined that there should be uh, bankruptcy filings, parallel filings under the CCAA and, and the related case filed in the U.S.? Yeah, pretty quickly. Um, it was essentially the event and the filings are roughly a month apart, but it was determined within a matter of a week or two um, that a filing had to occur Um the collective assets of the two railroads, the U.S. and Canadian railroads, which operated on a continuous track system, um, after the derailment were $25 million worth of insurance um, and asset values that were probably less than that post-derailment. And it was became pretty readily apparent when the extent of the damage was realized that the claims could exceed $1 billion. Um, so a filing was the only way to manage the uh, the cases and the tragedy. And, and as, as people know, a railroad organization understand one of the purposes of a railroad filing is to make sure that the railroad continues to operate. So first order of business was to rebuild the Canadian side of the railroad and then to find an acquirer for the railroad so that it could continue to operate and provide needed service to the various commercial entities in the system. Right. So... It it's, was a curiosity to me at, at the time that a number of the 
tort claims uh, were initially filed in Cook County, Illinois. What What is the connection between Cook County, Illinois, and a railroad crash in Quebec? Uh, well, that was that was one of the issues that we constantly discussed during the case. The, the origin of the Cook County cases um, was literally because um, certain of the uh, potential uh, decedent um, beneficiaries, in other words, family members of the parties who were killed in the crash, um, retained U.S. plaintiff's lawyers. And, and, and one controversial aspect of the case was the manner in which those uh, plaintiffs were recruited. Uh, but in any event, they obtained uh, U.S. plaintiff's lawyers, some from Texas, some from Illinois, um, who decided for the usual reasons um, that uh, filing those cases in Cook County might yield uh, greater results for their clients. Um, one of the first things I did upon becoming trustee was to use 28 U.S.C. 157b-5, which is a kind of unique provision of Title 28 that relates to bankruptcy cases, to transfer all of those cases from Cook County to the District of Maine, where the Chapter 11 case was pending. And that transfer was contested by the uh, the plaintiffs involved, but we were eventually succeeded um, in moving all those cases to Maine, and that was a major step in the case. And one of the things we'll you know we'll talk about today and uh, further, and we'll also talk about in the install program that you'll tell people about at the end, is that one of the first orders of business when you have these cases is that you've got to organize the litigation and find a way to essentially slow it down or stop it while you sort things out. Right, because there were there were parallel proceedings going on in Canada as well. Correct. There was a class action that was pretty quickly filed in Canada, um, which actually technically overlapped with the Cook County cases. Um, and so, uh, and obviously there were federal inquiries that happened immediately. There were environmental, uh, there was environmental litigation that was initiated by the um, Quebec government immediately. There were obviously various proceedings that threatened to overwhelm the case. Mm-hmm. We couldn't find a way to slow them down. And uh, bankruptcy, whether it's uh, under the CCAA or U.S. Chapter 11, uh, provided the kind of uh, forum where uh, you could uh, better get a handle on, on those uh, proceedings as opposed to fighting them off in different jurisdictions and different regulatory actions, presumably. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm of the belief after this case and after many other cases that um, the Chapter 11 system and its parallels in uh, other countries um, is probably the only way that these mass tort cases can be handled uh, with any kind of efficiency and, and efficacy. The uh, if, if you were to wait for all of these things to play out through the tort system, the recoveries to victims would be diminished and would take, you know, many, many years, if not decades, to be realized. Um, there's a benefit to the potential defendants and to the potential claimants and in in quickly arriving at some kind of trust channeling injunction system um, where the defendants can pay in money um, without incurring great legal costs. Uh, and the victims can get distributions um, within a reasonable time, again, at hopefully less cost. So I think the bankruptcy system is uniquely helpful here. It certainly worked in Lac-Megantic. I described the asset value issue to you, but we eventually distribute over 500 million Canadian to 
um, the various victim classes of the Lac-Megantic disaster. I'm not sure we ever could have done that uh, without the, the benefits of the two systems. Right. And I gather from a global insolvency regime standpoint, the case uh, in particular represents a fair amount of uh, comedy between U.S. and Canadian law in particular. Yeah, MMA, I don't know if it's unique, but it's certainly different in the sense that the plans that were confirmed on both the Canadian and U.S. sides were actually integrated. Um, in other words, they were actually dependent upon one another, um, and certain classes looked to one or the other plan to be compensated, but they worked together in order to fail or compensate um, the victims of the derailment as well as commercial creditors. Um, so there was a considerable amount of cooperation, both in selling the railroad and in achieving the settlements, um, as between the Canadian monitor, uh, me as trustee, and the various uh, counsel to the various parties. Right. right down to melding the wrongful death distribution matrix was a melding of Qu of Quebec and U.S. law. It wasn't a choice between Quebec or U.S. law. Right. A great example, uh, I think. Um, so, Laura, let's shift to uh, airbags. Um, so, Takata um, is a global supplier of, uh, of these products. The uh, parent company is located in Japan. It has a U.S. Uh, company as well. Uh, you know, products uh, go, go badly. Uh, there are tort claimants all over the place. There are recall costs uh, all over the globe uh, to... Um, automakers uh, and other suppliers. There are allegations that the company knew um, about uh, the defects from various whistleblowers uh, that, that came out. Um, so how does all of this get sorted out in, uh, in, in a bankruptcy proceeding? You know, Sam, it had an interesting beginning. Um, this is one where um, uh, the parent company uh, pled guilty. Um, and there was a, a fund set up by the Michigan District Court long before the bankruptcy mm -hmm. um, that established um, the uh, victims as people that were injured, as well as the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, right. who had put these uh, airbags into their vehicles. Um, and when that judgment came down um, as part of that plea, uh, then there were negotiations that went on apparently for about two years uh, between the parent, um, the U.S. entities, um, the OEMs, um, the buyer, uh, and other parties in interest. And those um, negotiations resulted in the company filing in the U.S. Um, with a uh, restructuring support agreement, uh, basically a, a deal for a plan in place. Uh, and only upon that filing, then, uh, was there the creation of an unsecured creditors committee and a tort claimants committee. Right. Uh, so we were running, obviously, very well behind uh, the ball and what was going on. And the plan that was going to be proposed um, provided for some return to unsecured creditors and to a 0.1 to a 0.4 uh, cent recovery uh, to economic loss and injured uh, and injury victims, um, that obviously was not acceptable. Right. I, I agree with uh, some comment that was made earlier by Bob that um, it, it being in a Chapter 11 gave us all then a platform to get together and to try to intensely negotiate something that was fair for all parties, including the tort claimants, and it did result 
um, in a global settlement being reached uh, that uh, that encompass uh, not only return for economic loss um, victims, but also personal injury loss victims. There were, uh, as, as you mentioned, this is the largest global recall in history, um, with many, many people being fatally hurt, some very seriously hurt, and some not um, physically hurt as much, uh, and then a lot of economic uh, loss. Um, so there is a, um, as part of the global settlement, there's a channeling injunction with respect to the OEMs uh, that is now just last week got approved by our district court here. Um, but um, the process was able to play out because we were able to bring everybody before one court, one negotiation, and it worked together. Little different in this case in the sense that the parent company was in Japan, we refer to them as TKJP. Um, did not have any assets in the U.S. So while they had a Chapter 15 also pending here in Delaware, it was filed maybe a month or so after the Chapter 11 was filed, uh, there really wasn't much activity uh, in that Chapter 15. Uh, it was used as a way to confirm some of the orders that had, um, um, that had been presented in the Chapter 15 uh, and to cause some connection with the Japan proceedings, but we did not have a protocol. We didn't have the normal or kind of the general things you would see simply because the parent did not have assets here that it was trying to protect. Mm -hmm. um, the, the parties did. Uh, there was a claim process for filing claims in Japan. Um, I, one thing I think we're going to talk about quite a bit when we're together uh, later in the month is um, what, what our group felt, and I know the unsecured creditors felt, was a lack of transparency. Uh, in the J Japanese proceeding. So all the claims that were filed by either tort claimants or the commercial claimants were all disallowed. Um, and it's a very um, a very difficult process uh, to go through, even though we all had retained special uh, Japanese counsel in Japan who were all very helpful, but they were uh, very candid uh, that it changes kind of case to case and it's a, it's a very difficult process to work through in Japan. All of that became fairly moot uh, as we were able to reach this global settlement in the U.S., um, but going to the point that I think you started here, the the intersection of uh, the tort um, claimants with the bankruptcy, I think while the bankruptcy is unfortunate for everyone, I think it does provide a vehicle uh, that we're able to get together and negotiate and, and finally came up with a resolution uh, that could be, that result in a very significant return. Uh, to the tort claimants as well as the unsecured claimants. Right. So it's a forum to get all of the stakeholders uh, together, whether they be secured uh, claimants, unsecured claimants, tort claimants, suppliers, vendors, um, one one forum, one process, um, uh, which allows for the kind of global solution. Absolutely. That, that I, I absolutely agree with that. So I know, um, Laura, your firm in particular is involved uh, in the Weinstein case. I won't ask you to um, specifically comment, but just in a, in a global sense, from a 20,000-foot view sense, is, is the um, idea of the, the bankruptcy forum uh, now in the case, um, does that provide at least the hope of the best uh, resolution for, the, again, the various uh, claimants and stakeholders who have different types of claims, uh, different parts of the country, 
but the idea being that everybody's uh, represented in one forum and can reach, hopefully, a, um, a reasonable solution. I, I think so, Sam. I mean, it's, it's Council, of the, Council of the Creditors Committee there, which is what our firm is doing. Um, you know, we again have the situation we had in Takata, which is, um, albeit our committee in Takata was um, named a tort committee, it had a variety of parties in it. It had parties that had just economic injury, those that had uh, physical injury and a combination. Um, and in the Weinstein Committee, again, we have a variety of, of folks that were injured um, by the, the situation itself. Um, or economically. Uh, and I think when um, you put those type of a variety of claimants together and you give them a forum, um, and it's a forum where people get to listen, but also people have to listen, uh, <laughs> and, and everyone has to kind of talk to each other, uh, I always think that there's hope of trying to reach uh, some type of resolution. Never as good as if the event never happened, right. um, but obviously trying to um, maximize um, a recovery to folks who have been injured by the process. Well, good luck to all the parties and Judge Walrath, too. <laughs> one point I would quickly add on that, I think, is one of the unique features of these mass tort cases, I think, is that at least the ones that eventually end up in bankruptcy, is that the, the claims overwhelm the available asset pool, including insurance. Right? So the benefit of being in bankruptcy is that that asset pool is not being dissipated by litigation costs in various places um, because the asset the, the assets available to tort claimants could very quickly be lost um, if these things are not quickly organized and quickly put into a structure where the focus is on a relatively fast resolution of the claims so that they can share in a fixed pool of assets that's been marshaled in bankruptcy right. and you just can't do that outside of chapter 11 or its counterparts in the other countries right Agreed. Well, thank you both for uh, joining me today. Uh, by the way, this panel will present a full hour program at the upcoming Insall Americas Conference to be held at the Grand Hyatt in New York on Sunday, April 29th at 12 noon. Laura and Bob will be joined by uh, Patrice Benoit, as I mentioned, uh, from the Montreal office of Gowling WLG, who was counsel to the debtor in the MMA case filed in Canada. And they'll also be joined by Deborah Dandino, who's the co-chair of Baker McKenzie's global restructuring practice from New York. She represented the uh, debtor Takata in their U.S. filing uh, under Chapter 15. Uh, Deborah was also involved in the MMA case uh, while she was at Wild Gottschall. So we're really looking forward uh, to that full uh, presentation. And as a reminder to all to register for the full conference, it's three full days of programming, and you can learn more at the Insol's website, which is insol.org. Also a reminder that there are more than 200 audio podcasts on the ABI website, abi.org slash newsroom. We're also available on SoundCloud uh, via their app and website. So until next time, uh, this is Sam Giordano for the ABI saying good day. Good day.